Amen. Um, take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Mark's Gospel. Uh, while you're turning there, uh, let me just say I, I really appreciate Ryan and, and him serving our church. He's under care of our presbytery and being trained and learning sort of the ropes of, of ministry and what it means to, to lead God's people, and, and part of that is what he does in worship. I just appreciate uh, the work that he does and, and just to see how the Lord is causing him to grow. What a, what a delight and blessing. Uh, let us uh, give attention as we read uh, from God's Word this morning from Mark chapter 2, beginning with verse 13. And he, that is Jesus, went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. That sends a reading of God's word. You may be seated. As you are, let's bow our heads to go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, so much for this beautiful day that you have given to us and that we might gather here this morning to worship you. Uh, as we do come now, Lord, uh, to hear the reading and the preaching of your word, we pray that you might grant us your grace, that as the word is, is preached, it would not come with words of human wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Holy Spirit and in his power. It's in Jesus' name and for his sake that we pray these things. Amen. It's so easy, I think, for us to become busy with life and, and get caught up in all the different things that are going on in the world that we might think of God as, as somewhat distant. We know that God is there, but we might oftentimes think of him as distant, maybe even uninterested in us and what is going on in our lives. But, but I hope that as we have been making our way through Mark's gospel, even as we've gone through just even the first chapter and a half, that you begin to get a very different picture of God. That he is personal. That he is moving towards us. That he thinks of us even when we do not think of him. That he comes to live among us. I mean, think about this. As Jesus came, the Jews were busy about their lives and doing the things they had these Old Testament prophecies, but they weren't really thinking about God coming to fulfill them. But yet, then Christ is born. And he comes and starts his ministry uh, to show that, that God cares. And, and as Christ comes, he comes as the Messiah. He comes as the king to free his people from the royal imposter, Satan, who places himself on the throne of this world. It reminds me, kids, you probably know the story of Robin Hood, right? And you have King Richard, who is the righteous and the good king. He's off fighting battles. And while he's away from home, Prince John, right? 
He puts himself on the throne and he rules over the people. And he's a wicked man and he uses his power to oppress the people and suppress them, to get taxes from them. And of course, that's where Robin Hood comes in. But we'll, we'll sort of stop the analogy there. But it's somewhat like that, that Christ comes. He, he is the rightful king and he marches forward freeing people from Satan's reign. And so as you read the different accounts, the different stories in Mark's gospel, they're not just stories, kids. They're actually there to, to get to teach us something, for us to see Christ's power and his authority. We see, first of all, Christ comes and he demonstrates his power over disease and illness and sickness. And he heals people. Now, we know that sickness and disease, all of that comes into the world because of sin. That doesn't mean that every person who is sick is sick because they sin. But sin entered the world, and because of that, then illness and sickness in general has entered. And so as you see Christ coming and he's healing people, you see him sort of pushing back on the domain of Satan. You see him demonstrating that he comes not as just a, a good man or a prophet or a rabbi, but he, he comes with the authority of God himself. And then we see, as we continue on, that Jesus not only has power over uh, disease, but also demons as well. And so he comes, and he begins to cast out demons. And, and they have no choice. When Jesus said, be gone, they had to be gone. They could, they could whine and they could complain, but they had to obey. They, they had no choice. And so the forces of Satan are being pushed back. And we need to keep that in mind and remember that. I mean, we live in a fallen world, do we not? And we see such wickedness. And we see the things that, that occur in, in our culture and, and the policies that are being made and, and what people are doing. And sometimes it can just seem like Satan is so powerful. But Jesus is present in the world today, brothers and sisters, and he is pushing back. He is pushing back uh, against the, the power of Satan. Well, then we see that Jesus cleanses the man who is ceremonially unclean by healing the leper and restoring him uh, to relationship and fellowship with God and with his people. And then as we come into chapter 2, we see the healing of the paralytic or the lame man. And, and Jesus confirms his power to forgive sins. But not only that, but Christ is also demonstrating his priority of spiritual healing rather than just physical healing. I know for, for many of us, we're so caught up in the things of this world, are we not? And even our prayers oftentimes reflect praying for physical things, physical needs, felt needs, if you, if you want to put it. And, and yet, if we sort of stop, even with all of our things around us and stuff, and when we're in those times when we are alone and we just sort of stop and reflect upon our lives, we realize that our true need is needs that are inside of us. There's, there are needs that we have regarding the heart. And that's, so Jesus, he comes and he really is showing us that he is advancing his kingdom and setting the captives free, not just in our felt needs, but in the true needs of our souls. And, and even as we look at our text today and the, the accounts that come just before that, we see that it gives us a picture of sin. The leper shows us that sin makes us unclean before a holy God. Uh, that the paralytic, the lame man, that sin requires forgiveness by God, the one whom we have wronged. And then, of course, the tax collector in today's account, that sin alienates us and makes us an outcast from God and his people. 
But as we come to that, and as we are reminded of the presence of sin in the world, and even the presence of sin in our lives, there is hope, brothers and sisters, in Jesus Christ. There is hope in Jesus Christ. And I want us to look at that this morning as we look at this account of the tax collector. And, and really, I just have two points. They're two long points, but they're two points. Okay. First of all is the call of Jesus. The call of Jesus. As he calls Levi from, from his tax booth. But let's begin with verse 13. It sort of sets the context. And he, that is Jesus, went out again beside the sea. Okay, he went out again. That means he had done it previously. Well, I would suggest to you that he's referring back to chapter 1, verse 16, where he was walking along the sea earlier, and he was preaching, and he called Simon and Andrew and James and John to follow him, to not only be disciples, but to be apostles, to be those who were more in the inner circle of, of his followers. And now, in verse 14, he does the same with Levi. He, he sees Levi, and, and, and he calls him, and he says, follow me. And, and so he does. Now, to truly appreciate what Mark is seeking to convey here, we really need to understand a little bit about tax collectors. Uh, you've probably heard sermons and heard some things on it, but let me just sort of refresh your memory. Tax collectors were people who were despised by their own people. Actually, they were Jews themselves who were considered traitors to their own country. And if you looked at what they did, you can understand why they got that reputation. They, they worked for the occupying government. Imagine if, if we had been taken over as the United States by some foreign power, and then there were Americans who worked for that foreign government to continue to oppress us. Would you think very highly of them? Probably not. You know? And it was like that with the tax collectors because they worked for the occupying government, Rome, collecting taxes that would then be spent on wars and further expanding the Roman Empire. And not only that, but Rome sort of demonstrated their rule over nations by sending in soldiers, occupying armies, but also by taxing the people as well. But what's really sort of sad is that Rome wouldn't even collect their own taxes. What they would do is, is they would offer to Jews the right to collect taxes. So these Jews would sort of buy the franchise, if you would. It's sort of like, you know, buying the franchise in Chick-fil-A. And I'm not comparing Chick-fil-A with tax collectors. But, you know, <laughs> it's just that sense that you buy into this franchise, which gives you the right then to collect taxes. And then the tax, tax collectors would not only collect the taxes that Rome wanted, but of course there were always fees, right? And there were charges that they would have to charge on top of those taxes, which then they could take that money and they could line their pockets with it and they could get rich. And, uh, and you get the sense that Levi was such a man, very corrupt, you know, a man who was very wealthy because it even says later on that he had this huge house where he had this big party and invited all these guests. And so he was a very wealthy man. But they would also, uh, these tax collectors would sort of like lend money, a little bit like loan sharks maybe. You know, oh, you can't pay your taxes? Oh, no problem. Levi's here to help you, right? You can just see his commercial on the internet, right, at the time. You know, he's, he's here to help you. You know, just so you won't be late on your taxes, I'll pay that. You know, interest rate, only 57%. You know, it's just these exorbitant rates that they would charge, so they would continue to keep people under their thumb. And what's so sad is, is that Rome really didn't care what the people thought of the tax collectors, nor did they care about how the tax collectors functioned. 
as long as they got their money, that's all they cared about. And so the common people in that day were just at the mercy of these tax collectors. And there was no one that could sort of stand up for them and, and help them. Uh, these men, these tax collectors, cared little for the law and nothing for God. Uh, the tax collectors could not testify in a court of law. They couldn't enter the synagogue or the temple uh, worship because they were cut off from God's people. And so it, it was uh, when the people thought of tax collectors, these men were universally hated. I think that's pretty much the only way to put it. Maybe they saw them as weasels, you know, would maybe be a, another descriptive word. But they always lumped tax collectors together with the worst of sinners, the worst kind of people in society. So you have tax collectors and sinners. You have tax collectors and prostitutes. You have tax collectors and winos or drunkards. You have tax collectors and junkies. You know, I was trying to think how to put this sort of in modern terms that we might grasp. And then I heard a, a preacher use an illustration that I thought was very helpful. I want to use it myself. He said, imagine if you could that Levi was a pedophile. Or, or he was a sex offender and he was living in your neighborhood. And Jesus knocks on his door one day. And Jesus walks in and there is Levi on his computer viewing pornography. And Jesus looks at him and says follow me. And Levi gets up, and he walks out of the house, and he follows Jesus. Now, you can only imagine what the nice people of the neighborhood would say, right? What they would say of Levi, yes, but even of Jesus himself. And so there's, there's a sense, and I want you to feel the weight of the sin of, of Levi, okay? Because I think we oftentimes look at the, the scribes, the Pharisees, and we Look at them and think, how could they be so harsh? But these were pretty wicked people. As a matter of fact, three times in just these five verses, actually in just two verses, verses 15 and 16, Mark uses the term sinners and tax collectors uh, three times to sort of emphasize that point. And so here's Levi. He is this tax collector. He's sitting in his booth beside the seat doing his work. He's located along a major trade route. Okay, that's there was a, a road that ran along the sea, and most likely he was one of those tax collectors that, it, that taxed imported merchandise that, that came into the area. And, and we read in verse 14 that as Jesus passed by, he saw Levi sitting at the booth. Now, now catch what's going on. In verse 13, we read that people are coming to Jesus, right? Jesus is like a magnet. There's crowds, people everywhere coming to Jesus. But as Jesus is ministering, he's not paying attention to all these people that are coming, but he sees Levi. That's where his focus goes to. Now, people were coming and going to Levi's booth as well, uh, probably being gouged by his greed, and doubtlessly were leaving his booth very angry and uh, resentful. But nobody really saw Levi. Nobody really cared about Levi. No one had a breath to waste on Levi. Until Jesus, it says, saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And it says that he rose and followed him. So the turning point for Levi's life, and the turning point for any of us who are here today, who are Christians, is Jesus' call. This was, in one sense, no different than Jesus' encounter with disease or with demons. When Jesus spoke, 
and what he commanded happened. And, and, and the same way here is Jesus calls Levi and he follows Jesus. So we definitely see the power of Christ to call people out from the world and to make his disciples. Without a divine call, no one can be saved. Um, I know for some Christians, though, God's election is a hard truth to swallow and, and oftentimes a stumbling block. And I think part of that comes in is as we think about God's election, we view it from our perspective in our frailty as human beings. And we don't understand that God is a God who is rich in mercy. God is, is a God who is great in love. That God's wisdom is way beyond our wisdom. And, and as a, a result of that, you know, we don't understand that God's purpose in His electing grace. That it truly is a gracious truth. I mean, if you think about it, before Christ calls us, we are so sunk in our sin. We are, we are so wedded to the world that we would never turn to God and seek salvation unless He first called us by His grace. You know, God must speak to our hearts by His Holy Spirit before we will ever speak to Him. Brothers and sisters, even for those of us who grow up in the church and we look so good on the outside and we can speak all the religious language, that is the condition of our heart until we come to faith in Jesus Christ. But praise God, He does speak, right? Praise God, the Holy Spirit does work in our hearts and sinners are set free from the bondage of sin. And so prostitutes and drunkards and junkies and pedophiles and good middle-class citizens and churchgoers and the rich and the powerful are set free to become disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, lest you think that Levi was just sitting here trying to weigh his options, what's better, should I stay and do what I'm doing or should I follow Jesus? Actually, Luke, in his account of uh, this uh, story, says this, And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. So Levi left everything. He gave it all up to follow Jesus. And that's what Christ's call does. He calls us to leave everything and come to him. And so that was a pivotal life or time in, in his life. Friend, there, there is no new direction, no, no change of heart, no renovation of life apart from Christ's sovereign call in the gospel. And maybe you're hearing my voice this morning and you have tried to turn over a new leaf. And perhaps you've even tried to pray to God and, and have him ask you. You've done everything better. You've tried harder. And after a while, you found that actually your heart remains unchanged. So why is that? What's the explanation? Well, it is that the call and only the call of the sovereign Lord Jesus Christ can change our hearts, right? You know, that even if we try to turn over a new leaf, if we don't look to Jesus, if we don't look to Him to give us a new heart, then we're still dealing with the old, wicked heart that we have, and we will never be made any different. But when we come to Jesus, He gives us a new heart. He makes us a new person. And we can come to him. So take comfort and find hope in the fact that Jesus calls Levi after all. You see, that means that there's really no one beyond the reach of God's grace. No one. No one is too low. No sinner is too great that, he, that God cannot save him. There's no case so unlikely that the call of Jesus can't reach them and change them. And we know that as we look at the Bible. I mean, look at Levi. He calls Levi, 
But he also calls men like Saul of Tarsus, right? Hate-filled persecutors of the church, murderers, who then he makes to be Paul, a missionary, a Gentile, or, or apostle to the Gentiles. He takes Simon, who's impetuous, quick to speak, he's slow to understand. You know, he's sort of a ready, a fire, aim kind of guy. He's sort of moving forward. And he makes him Peter. Upon this rock I will build my church. He takes John, who is has the title of Son of Thunder, and he makes him John the Apostle of the love of God. You see, brothers and sisters, we, we need to keep this in mind. These aren't just Bible stories. These are realities that happen. You know, that God takes people who are the most wicked of wicked sometimes, and he changes them and uses them for his glory. I mean, think about Levi. You know, here he is, despised, running a protection racket on behalf of the imperial Roman oppressor. He makes a few bucks off the backs of his countrymen. And then Jesus makes him Matthew. Do you know that? That's really the other name that he has. When Levi recalls this story in his gospel, the gospel of Matthew, he actually doesn't call himself Levi, but he calls himself Matthew. And if you understand the name of Matthew, you understand why he uses that name. Because Matthew means gift of Yahweh, or gift of God. And it speaks of God's wonderful grace. And here Levi's been taking and taking and taking and taking from people. And now is the extravagant grace of Jesus Christ erupts into his heart. He now becomes a changed man. He devotes himself to following Jesus and to the service of others. And, uh, and, and I think we need to, to see that God does a mighty work. So here is a man, brothers and sisters, who is a tax collector. And God takes him and not only gives him a new heart and changes him, makes him an apostle, but then also uses him to write one-fourth of the gospel account that we have in the New Testament. Now, for those of you that were in Sunday school, we just went through the life of Jesus. And Chris kept taking us back to Matthew a lot, right? Because Matthew tells us a lot about Jesus' account. Imagine what we wouldn't know about the gospel had God not used Matthew to share about Jesus' life. And I just say that because, brothers and sisters, there may be those today that we may be tempted to walk by. People maybe who are homeless, who are strung out on drugs, maybe are addicted to alcohol, and they're just a mess. And yet God's plan is to use that person to not only save them, but to bring them to Kirk of the Plains where one day they may be a ruling elder in our church. They may be here to serve and to care and watch over this body. But the Lord may bring that person here to Kirk of the Plains that they might receive the call of God to go to seminary and we may send them off and they may go and they may plant a daughter church here in Kansas for the furthering spreading of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But there may be some that, that hear me today and go, Oh, but Pastor Rick, you don't know me. You don't know my heart. There's no way that God could love me that much. You know, you may be saying it's too late. You know, I, I'm, a, I'm a helpless case. Jesus may be for others, but, but he's not for me. But I'm here to tell you that what he has written down in his word uh, says something totally different than that. It says that he loves to rescue apparently hopeless cases. And such was Levi. 
There's nobody who is beyond the reach of God's grace. Jesus is for you. And so if you hear that invitation, and you will receive that invitation and come to Him, that call that He has upon your life to turn your life over to Him, He will give you that grace. But also for us as Christians, we may struggle as well. And we may need to be reminded of the tremendous depth of God's grace. Because there um, is no heart so hard, no loved one who is prayed for, or no loved one that we have wept over so much that's so spiritually indifferent that the call of Christ can't still reach them and bring them from the tax booth to, into a life of discipleship. And yet you may be here to mourn this morning and you may be discouraged. Maybe you've been praying for someone for years and you've not seen any change in their heart. I want to encourage you this morning, don't stop praying. Don't stop praying. They're not beyond God's reach. Please don't stop bearing testimony to what Jesus Christ has done in your heart to this person. Continue to share with them the gospel of Jesus Christ and how Jesus was the pivotal point in your life. Don't stop inviting that person to church. You know, they may seem to you to be such an unlikely case, maybe a very improbable convert. And maybe Satan is whispering to you this morning, they'll never become a Christian. You know, perhaps... You ought to just move on to maybe an easier target to someone else. Well, I'm here to tell you this morning, no, no. Let Levi's story encourage you that there is no hopeless cases. The call of Jesus' love to rescue apparently hopeless cases is very much a reality. And who knows, the Lord may use you yet as an instrument in that person's life to call them as Jesus called Levi, to come and to follow him. And so we have Jesus' call upon the life of Levi, but also upon our lives as well. But I also want us to look at those that Jesus called. Okay, not only his call, but those he called. And, and we see that in verses 15 through 17. And, and, and what we're really looking at here is those who Jesus invites to come to follow him, those whom he calls. And in verse 15, you'll see that that Levi throws a, a big party at his house. Many think that it's sort of like a conversion party. You know, he's come to faith in Christ and he's partying, he's celebrating, you know, this is, this is good news. And so he invites the only people who will associate with him. And so what, what does that mean? That means his house is full of tax collectors and sinners, right? Because none of the religious people will hang out with him. And so it's a house full of outcasts, sort of the dregs of, of society. And there in the midst of it all is who? Jesus, right? Jesus and his disciples. And so we read in verse 15, And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Now that phrase is a little hard to understand. The, there were many who followed him. Some think the him is referring to Levi, that he had maybe tax collectors that worked under him. And so they were uh, there following him in his party, and they um, were there. But then others think that maybe that he's talking about Jesus, that there were those who actually were, were following Jesus, that these other sinners had heard of Jesus, and out of curiosity they had come to hear him. Now they were following him, but they were maybe not following him in the sense that Levi did, that they left everything in order to follow Jesus. I, I don't know what the interpretation is exactly, but, but I knew, do know 
that Mark's point is, is that Jesus is eating and he is fellowshipping with tax collectors and sinners. And, and you, you really, to get the weight of this, you have to understand the mindset of that day. You have to understand that tax collectors were regarded like Gentiles. And, and no self-respecting Jew would have had a meal with a Gentile. Not at all. Uh, as a matter of fact, there was actually an ancient rabbinical regulation that said this. If tax gatherers enter a house, all that is in within it becomes unclean. So see, that even raises the stakes even more. So I would suggest to you that most likely these scribes, the scribes of the Pharisees, and the Pharisees were outside the house. You know, that no self-respecting religious leader or adherent to the traditions of the rabbi would have ever thought about stepping foot in that house and having a meal with those people. And so they're standing outside the house, and verse 16, they don't ask Jesus this, but they actually ask his disciples. They say, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, that idea of tax collectors and sinners is emphasized, if you look in the original Greek, it actually those are the words using first. So the verse reads more like this, tax collectors and sinners he eats with. In other words, what's he thinking about? Why is he doing that? I mean, to them, this was a, a scandalous idea. Because they understood that sin makes us despicable. It makes us like sex offenders. It makes us like people that clean people wouldn't want to live beside. But the problem with sin is, is that it's easy to see in others, but not so much in ourselves. And so sin oftentimes makes us point to others and say that, that they're the problem. I mean, think about it. What if I said, what's the problem with life? And you might say, well, you are. I mean, I see this a lot when I do marriage counseling. You know, so what's the problem in your marriage? And each spouse points to the other one. I don't think, I, well, I can't say I don't think. I know for a fact. I've never had anybody come into my office that needed marriage counseling. And I said, okay, guys, so what's the problem? And one of the spouses says, I'm the problem. You know, I have sinned against my spouse. I, I, I am so sorry. I just can't stop doing that. You know, there's never that sense. It's always, that's the problem. You know, kids, you know, when you think about the problem in your home, you might say, well, it's my little sister. She's just sort of a pain. She's always following me around, always nagging me. Or it's my older brother, right? They're always telling me what to do and stuff. That's the problem. You know, as we think about the problems of our country, what's, what's the problems with our country? Well, that's simple. It's the Democrats, right? They're the problem. Or it's the Republicans, right? They're the problem. You know, if we could just, if they, they could just change, or maybe if they just even go away, that'd be much better. You know, then we could get on and we could, you know, get things going right. Or maybe the problem in our country is the white people or the racists. Or, or maybe it's the problem is the people who hold the critical race theory, right? It's always somebody else who is the problem. And for these scribes and Pharisees, the problem was people like these tax collectors and sinners. And so why did Jesus eat with them? Well, David Strain, who's a pastor at First Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi, tells a story actually from his own life uh, that sort of illustrates the difference between these, these two groups, between the, the Pharisees and the scribes of the Pharisees and then the tax collector and his friends. And, and David says when he was in high school, he said they, they had an exam uh, every year and he goes they would turn the cafeteria into the exam center and he goes so they'd have to stand outside in the hallway 
you know, for 15 minutes and, you know, wait. And then when the doors were open, then you could walk in, you could find your seat, and then you could take your exam. He goes, those 15 minutes were the worst 15 minutes of his life. He said he hated that. He said, because there's always these super smart kids that were sort of exuding an air of confidence. You know, they, they, they knew that they were going to ace this exam. And David said, but he was standing there, like, you know, looking through his notes and sweating and, you know, trying to, you know, really cram all he could before the exam. And, and he goes, it, it was just terrible. But then he used that illustration and he said, here's the difference between Levi and his friends celebrating with Jesus around the banqueting table and the scribes and the Pharisees on the other hand. Here's the difference between people who will come to Jesus and receive his grace and those who won't receive his grace. The Pharisees think life is like waiting in that school hallway for the exam. They think that some sort of test that they'll have to pass, some display of personal righteousness that will qualify them for the kingdom. They're not looking for a savior. They don't think they need a savior. They're looking to be more righteous than everyone else. The Levi and his friends, they have come to realize that they're desperately sick. And they're waiting too, but they're not waiting out in the hallway to take the exam. They're actually waiting in the doctor's office because they realize that they have an uncurable disease and they need the doctor to touch them. And so when Jesus, the great physician, calls their name, he makes them whole. And that's why Jesus says in verse 17, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, right? It's the sick people that need a physician. Jesus said, I, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And here again, Luke adds in his gospel to that phrase, uh, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance, to a life of repentance. So you see, there's sort of a double-edged sword here. It, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I came not to call the people who have it all together. I, I didn't come to call churchgoers who look good on the outside and who use all the, the language of salvation, um, but I have called those who are in need. You know, this just reminds me of a Jesus uh, story that he told in Luke 18 about the two men who came in to pray. Remember who they were? One was a Pharisee. Who was the other one? Tax collector. They came in to pray. And uh, Luke 18, 11, we see the Pharisee praying before the tax collector. He said, God... I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners. We sort of understand that comment now, right? In light of what tax collectors were like. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I give. In other words, God, thank you so much that I'm not a Democrat. God, thank you so much that I'm not a Republican. God, thank you so much that I'm not like those who have friends with benefits. Or Lord, thank you so much that I'm not like, and then just fill in the blank of any sin that somebody else, that you see in somebody else's life, but you don't see in your own life. You see, all along, we oftentimes can believe the lie that if I can just keep myself from sin that I see in others, then God will somehow be pleased with me. But then Jesus goes on and he, he shares the prayer of the tax collector. In, in Luke 18.13, we read, But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Oh God, I am hopelessly irreligious. 
I am deplorable. I'm despicable. Lord, I live my life caring little for you and your law. And I, I care nothing for your glory. Oh God, have mercy on my soul. God, please, Lord, don't treat me as I deserve. I am lost. I am damned. And Jesus says in that parable in Luke 18, 14, I tell you this, or I tell you, this man, that is the, the tax collector, went down to his home justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And so Jesus says, I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners. Brothers and sisters, isn't that a picture of the church? You know, that's, that's who we are, right? Let's just be clear here, okay? Just so everybody knows that we are the Levi's and we are his friends, right? We are the tax collectors and sinners. And we are gathering this morning to celebrate our deliverance together with Jesus, right? We are doing that. Uh, that's the church. The church is not a place uh, for the good and the great. It's not. It's a. It's a. It's a place for people like you. It's a place for people like me. A place for sinners who have come to the Savior, not for the healthy, but the sick who have come to a doctor to get care. Well, if you are here this morning, and you feel no conviction of sin, no need of a Savior. You're quite happy with your good little life. Then I don't have anything to say to you. I have no word for you. I, I have no call for you. Just sort of passing you by. Because in your mind, you're too good for a Savior. But if you're here this morning, and you feel the weight of your sin, the filth of it, you know that you're not worthy to stand in the presence of God. You know that you need a Savior. You know that God has rescued you from who you are. Then Jesus says, I have come to call you. It's not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. Come to me, all you who are sick of your sin, sick in your sin, and you will find Jesus, the Savior you need. Let me just say this. As, I, as we close. You know, I think as, as you look at this story, you sort of see a separation between the scribes and the Pharisees out in the courtyard and, and Levi and his friends with Jesus celebrating around the banqueting table. And it's really a very solemn picture because that's eventually, it's going to be that separation in eternity that's going to be fixed one day. That those who, who hear the invitation of Jesus issued to sinners and see the themselves in the description and flee to the Savior who themselves uh, see themselves as sick and needing the great physician, the Lord Jesus Christ. They are the ones that are going to gather around the banqueting table with Jesus forever and ever and ever, never to end. But those who resist his call, thinking that they have no need of a doctor, who depend upon their own righteousness, who, who see themselves as, as good enough before God, they will remain in the outer darkness where they will be weeping and gnashing of teeth forever. My question for you this morning is, so which will be your destiny? Will you stay outside with the scribes and the Pharisees? Or will you hear Jesus' invitation, come and follow me and join him in the great celebration around the banquet table with the tax 
collectors and the sinners who were saved by grace. Let's bow our heads this morning and, and just consider that question. Think about that. What is your destiny? Or maybe as we have this time of silence, maybe you need to consider your heart because maybe your heart is maybe more like that of the Pharisees. That while you know that you are a child of God, you still see that sense of self-righteousness that, that raises its ugly head. And, and maybe you need to bring that before the Lord and be right with Him. Or maybe you're here today and, and you're struggling to believe that God's grace is truly as great as it is. And there are those that, that you have prayed for and yet you have doubted that God would ever bring any kind of change. And you need to come to Him and to lift them up to Him knowing that He is a God who is able to do far more exceedingly than all that we could ask or imagine. Let's just spend a few moments in silence before the Lord and let Him deal with our hearts as He sees fit. Jesus there's not a, a person within the sound of my voice who doesn't need the great physician today so Lord will you please strip away all of our boasting and all of our self-righteousness and self-reliance Lord show us not only how empty we are but how soul destroying our self-reliance and self-righteousness really is and then, Lord, would you help us as you invite us to come and to follow you, to come and find at your hand the healing our hearts need, the cleansing only you can give and provide. Oh, Lord, may we enjoy fellowship with you as, as Matthew and his friends did with great celebration. Lord, we ask these things in your name. Amen. Amen.